0: I should like to call your attention this evening to the fifth verse in the 118th Psalm, which we have read at the beginning. The fifth verse in Psalm 118. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. Now, the great thing about the Bible is that it's a book that presents its truth to us in so many different forms. That is one of the great marvels of the Bible. You get truth presented directly, didactically, explicitly, but it's also presented in many other different ways. It's presented in history, presented in pictures, images, illustrations. Indeed, there is almost no end to the variety of ways in which the truth is presented to us in the Scriptures. Now, people often fail to realize that, and thereby they misunderstand the Bible altogether. That's why different people bring different complaints against the Bible. There are some people who say they're very interested in its teaching. People who say they're very interested in the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. But that's about the extent of their interest in the Bible. They're looking for a philosophy, a teaching, an ethic, or something like that. And they think that the Bible should primarily be a book that gives us that and that alone. And they say they're not a bit interested in the historical books, especially those of the Old Testament are not really interested in the history, even of the New Testament itself. And there are others who bring their different forms of criticisms. But I say, the glory of the Bible is that it is so comprehensive. And in particular, I think we should thank God for this, that it not only gives us this great and glorious teaching, but it gives it us also in terms of experience in terms of history. Now, if that is a proposition that is more or less true of the whole of the Bible, it is in particular true of this book of Psalms, out of which we take this 118th Psalm for consideration this evening. This is the peculiar and special merit of this book, that here we have been writing out of their actual experience I called upon the Lord in distress. Here's not a man sitting down to write a poem, or a man sitting down to write some learned disquisition and presenting theoretical views and ideas about life and living. That isn't what we've got here. We've got primarily a man who wants to tell us about something that has happened to him, about his experience. Now, it's important at the same time to notice That he doesn't only tell us about his experience. You see, that is the marvel of the Bible. It isn't only one thing. Some people want teaching only, others want experience only. But the Bible's got to be taken as it is, and the Bible is always a whole. So that here, in addition to giving us some account of his actual experience, the man also at the same time presents us with the great teaching which is the common teaching and message of the whole of the Bible from beginning to end. In other words, he finds that his particular experience is nothing but a particular experience of something general. In other words, he says, in effect, I have proved in my own life the great truth of the message that has been taught by the people of God and to the people of God from the very beginning. Now, that is exactly what this man does in his psalm, and that is, I say, one of the chief characteristics of all these psalms. It's a man writing to expound the truth, but to do so in terms of experience. He isn't a theorist. He isn't a man doing something academic and remote from life and the practicalities and the difficulties of life. He's writing right out of the center of experience. And that is, I say, what makes it of such great value. Now, the trouble with people who don't believe in the Bible, the real reason as to why people don't believe it and why they don't know anything in consequence of the nature of the Christian life and of the Christian experience, is just this very thing, that they're wrong in their fundamental view, but also at the same time are entirely lacking in experience. They don't know. They haven't tried it. They haven't put it to the proof. They sit and they look on in a detached manner. But as I say, they not only go astray with regard to the content and the nature of the truth itself and think that it's only an ethic or a a moral code or a political program or a proposal for social action or one of these many things into which they try to turn the gospel. They're not only wrong in theory. They know nothing about it in practice. They've got no experience of it at all. And that is why I say uh, so many people uh, go astray with regard to this whole matter of the Christian life and of the nature and the content of the Christian uh, gospel. And the result of this is, of course, that the misunderstandings of the gospel are almost endless in number. But it seems to me that of all the misunderstandings of the gospel that are current today and so common, There are two which are particularly common. And the two are these. People tell us that they're not Christian and that they're not really interested in it because they think that it's a very narrow sort of life. That's the idea, isn't it? That if you're a Christian, you're a narrow person. That you're a little person, a cramped person, living a very little life. You know nothing about the breadth and the greatness of life out in the world. You know... The sort of man who calls himself a man of the world. He's not a Christian, He's a man of the world. Wide outlook. You can only measure his great mind in world dimensions so big. In contradistinction to this little person who calls himself a Christian, whose outlook is so now keeps himself to one book, for instance, and doesn't know anything walks through life in blinkers and can only see straight ahead and hasn't got this grand vision and this bigness of outlook that characterizes the man of the world who feels that he's emancipated himself by shaking off all he was taught in the Sunday school if ever he was sent there or when he was forced as a child to go to a place of worship. Now, you'll agree, I think, that this is one of the commonest charges that is brought against the Christian faith. And it is so intolerably narrow And that to be Christian means that you're a narrow-minded person. And the second, I think, of the common charges brought against the Christian faith is that it leads to a very miserable and unhappy sort of life. You know the term, miserable Christians. Miserable. In other words, we've all probably sometime or another who claim to be Christian had to endure this. Uh, we've uh, been pitied by people who are not Christian. They're sorry for us, they say, because we're such miserable people. That while they in their great happiness are drinking and so on, that we are so unhappy. Of course, the whole thing is false. I'm not concerned so much to demonstrate that. But you see, it's a curious sort of happiness that can only be produced by drugs. However, there it is. Uh, They are taking the drug and uh, feel very happy and they're sorry for us because we are not under the influence of drugs and therefore appear to them to be miserable. But that is a charge that is so commonly brought against this Christian way of life that it's a miserable life, a narrow one and a miserable one. So many think of the Christian life, in the words of Milton, as a life which leads one to scorn delights and live laborious days. That picture of the Christian is still Uh, very common and very current. Now, what I want to try to show you tonight is this, that both these are wrong, and I want to show you that in terms of what this man tells us in his psalm. He takes up these two criticisms, these two very criticisms that are so common today, and he refutes them both. Indeed, he utterly demolishes them. And what he does here is what is really done by the Bible from beginning to end. The Bible is a great exposition of the godly way of life. Life lived in relationship to God, and it contrasts it with everything else. Now, let me say this. These men who wrote these Psalms were men and women like ourselves. And they were not writing, I say, from a theoretical, academic, or detached standpoint. They were very much men and women who lived life in this world, even as we do. You see, you get some of these psalmists, like David, for instance, saying, I was young and now I'm old, yet this is my experience. Again, David says to us, I would sooner, he says, be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked or of the ungodly. Now, David knew a little bit about both of them. You see, there is one advantage that we who are Christians have over people who are not Christians. We know something about the two lions. And the man who isn't a Christian only knows one. We are Christian, we haven't been brought up in glass houses. We know the life of the world. We are not ignorant of these things. We know it. We have tried it in a measure. We are speaking from experience also. We are not, I say, speaking in a theoretical manner. There are many in this building at this moment, Christian people, who have been right in the middle of the life of the world. There's nothing that anybody here tonight who isn't a Christian knows about that life, but that these people have tried it. They've taken it to its full. They know all about the non-Christian life. Yes, but they know also about the Christian life. And they're in a position to judge and to evaluate, whereas the man who's only tried one and hasn't tried the other, he cannot really evaluate, he doesn't know. He's not in a position to judge and to estimate. He's the theoretician. Very well, now then, let's follow this man as he takes up this point, and as indeed he sums it all up in this one verse that we're looking at together, this fifth verse. Here, I want to show you, is a perfect statement of the whole case of the entire Bible. It's a perfect statement, if you like, of the Christian gospel. You who know your New Testaments will know that this 118th psalm is quoted many times in the New Testament. It's not only an actual historical writing, but it's also a prophetic foreview of the blessings of the gospel. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. That's our Lord himself quoting that, anticipating his own resurrection. It's quoted by the apostles after. Here, in a sense, is a great summary of the Christian gospel. And I want to put it before you tonight, especially in terms of these two commonest of all the criticisms that are brought against the Christian gospel and its way of life, that it's narrow, that it's miserable. Listen to this man. He breaks out at once and he refutes it. Oh, he says, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. As he starts, so he ends. That was the first verse. This is the last verse. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. This man is inviting you to join him in singing, in praising God. He wants you to join him in celebrating a victory. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place and he can't contain himself. He's filled with joy. It's the opposite of this notion of the Christian as a small and as a miserable man. Indeed, I'm not here to defend the gospel. I'm here to attack. I'm here, my friends, to try to show you that the only big life is the Christian life. That far from this, being a small or a narrow or a cramped life, it is, as this man says, a large place, a wide place. And that everything else is miserably and pathetically small. I'm sorry for everybody who isn't a Christian, that they should be living such a small life. Let me show it to you. Let me put it in the form of some three propositions, therefore. Let us for a moment look at the life from which the gospel delivers us. Now, you see, this gospel is a gospel of deliverance. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. He's a man who's been delivered. What was he delivered from? Well, he says he was in distress. Now, the word that was actually used by the writer of the psalm, according to all the authorities, is a word that carries with it the whole notion of pressure and of confinement. When you're in a position of distress, it means that you're being pressed upon and you're being driven, as it were, into a corner. You're being surrounded. Well, you've noticed how in the psalm he he describes this in great detail. He says, All nations compassed me about, they compassed me about, they compassed me about like bees, you can see a swarm of bees crowding in round this person and is being narrowed into a corner. That's the meaning of distress. Now then, that according to the Bible is the kind of life that is lived by all those who don't live their life for God or who are not Christian people. You see, it is a life that is contrasted with what is called here a large place, which again means... A wide place. You've got a wonderful contrast here between the distress, the narrowing down, and the breadth and the width and the largeness, the bigness, which is the life that is given to men and women by God. Now, you notice, therefore, that this man, as indeed the whole of the Bible, is claiming the exact opposite of what is said by way of criticism of the Christian gospel and the Christian way of life at the present time. That's the reason why people are not Christian, isn't it? At least that's the reason they give. They say they want to live life, life with a capital L, a big life, a broad life. None of this cramping life of the Christian and of religion. They want emancipation. Most people, I say, who become opposed to the Christian gospel and give up religion at a given age, adolescence, or whenever it may happen, they always have a feeling that they've emancipated themselves. Religion has been regarded as a kind of incubus. The dope of the people, sob stuff, that which has been a break upon the forward march of the human race, that which has held people down and held them in, that has prevented people from expressing themselves and rarely living as men and women should live. And you see, the claim is today that having done away with religion, men and women are now really living this big life, this life of self-expression. That's what you're seeing on the television, this big life of self-expression. Man has come to his own, he's grown up, and oh, how big he is, in contrast with the little men who used to be held down and hemmed in by religion and by Christianity. That's the position, isn't it? Well, now let's examine it. According to this, men, as according to the whole of the Bible, the life which is without God and without Christ is a life of distress. It's a small life. It's a narrow life. It's a little life. Is this possible, says someone? Well, let's see. Let's examine it. Let's examine it in these terms. I'm here to suggest that the life which is not based on God is a small life as regards its outlook. That his very outlook is a confining one. What is the outlook of the men of the world tonight who doesn't believe in God and who doesn't believe in Christ? Who doesn't believe in the death of Christ and the cross as an atoning act? Who doesn't take the bread and the wine? Who doesn't believe the great gospel of salvation? What is his outlook? Well, there's no difficulty about this. They're expressing it very volubly for us at the present time. Get it in their books. Whether they're books and philosophy, or whether they're novels, whether they're drama, plays, whatever it is. Television, radio, everywhere. It's all being put before us at the present time. Now this is the life which we are called upon to admire, and which is the life of emancipation, and which leads to such bigness. But look at it. What is it? Well, the first thing that I notice about it is this is that at the very beginning it's a very cramped and small and confined life. It's entirely bound by this world. It's entirely bound by that which it can be seen. There's no spiritual element in it at all. That's discounted, that's not believed. There's no great God above all, beyond all dwelling in eternity in a light which is unapproachable. Non-existence, he's not there. Life, the whole of their thinking is bound by the visible, the seen, and the present. No spiritual element at all. All that's knocked right out. Already, you see, it's been narrowed down. But not only that, what is their view of men himself? What is this big view of men which we are asked to believe? after we have renounced the biblical view of men and the gospel view of men. What is men? Well, according to these people, men is nothing but an animal. Some of them are ready to admit that he's body and soul. But uh, there's no spirit. He's body and soul, by which they mean that he's got this physical body, and he's got, yes, they say there is something else in men. There is a difference between a man and an animal after all. Call it soul, call it what you like. Now, some of them, I say, are ready to grant that. The majority don't even grant that there is such a thing as the soul at all. And they say that man is nothing but a body, and he is really nothing but But an an animal. No essential distinction between the man and the animal, but that a man has developed the higher part of his brain a little bit more than the animal. It's a matter of degree, not of kind. So you see, the soul and the spirit are knocked out altogether. There is no question of men having something about him which uh, fits him. For the unseen realm and of the glories that belong there. No, no. They say you must dismiss all that. That's all imagination. Man, they say, is more or less a machine. He is just a physical frame. He's got certain wonderful powers because the human body is very wonderful. They say don't make too much even of his mind because the mind is nothing but some sort of secretion of the brain. It's purely physical. Don't make too much of this, they say. People have made too much of these sort of things in the past and they've brought in their imaginations. No, no, men, let's be frank and honest, they say, he's nothing but an animal. He's really nothing ultimately but a body. But all this, Mark, you in the name of bigness and of greatness. This is what they bring men to. They reduce it to a mere animal, to a mere body, without soul and without spirit. Then let's ask them what uh, their view is of life. What is life? Well, they'll tell you quite honestly that they see no purpose in it. There's no purpose in life. There's no object in life. They say, of course, you should try to make the best of it while you're here. But they say, with regard to the thing itself, there is no end, there is no object. There is no one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. You ask you your scientific humanists like Sir Julian Huxley, and that's what they'll tell you, that there's no purpose, no design in life. You ask you are humanist historians, and they'll tell you exactly the same thing. There is no purpose, there is no end. They'll tell you that having studied history for so many years, they cannot see any real purpose in it all. Life is ultimately purposeless and meaningless. All this is said, remember, in the interest of bigness, largeness, breadth, to which we must enter from the cramping, confined view which is provided by the Bible and by religion. And what of their values in life? What are the things that they do value? Well, let them speak for themselves. Now, I'm prepared to accept any criticism which can be offered of the Bible or of the Christian life, but I do claim that it ought to be intelligent. And there's one thing I will not take from the unbeliever, and that is when he says that we're unintelligent because we're Christian, and that he's not a Christian because he's intelligent. How does he spend his time? What are his values? Well, I don't think there's much difficulty about answering that at the present time, is there? Pleasure, pleasure is obviously the first thing today. Pleasure. And I needn't go into the details of the type of pleasure. If I'm asked to believe that people to shout and scream hysterically is a sign of intelligence, well then I must ask for new dictionaries. But you see, this is the kind of thing that's said in the name of intellect, criticism of religion. Narrow, cramped, confined, that's the big life in which you work yourself up into a hysteria and just shout. Well, these are facts. Men and women are interested in pleasure. They're interested in position. Position is tremendously important today. has never perhaps been more important. Cutting a figure. Getting on. Being the top of some list or another. It doesn't matter which it is. It's the same thing. Whether it's a socialist or a political list or any one of these other lists which talk so much about their top people. Same thing. These are the things for which people... And this is said to be intelligent. This is big. In contradistinction to this little life of the Christian. And then possessions. It's a materialistic age in which we live. Man has never been so interested in money and in possessions as he is today. There was a time when just a few people used to have wealth. It's been very much spread out at the present time, and everybody's interested in wealth. I always said that the poor were as interested in wealth then as the rich. The trouble was that the rich had got it and they hadn't. It wasn't that there was any real difference in the philosophy. And today everybody's got it and life is judged in terms of possessions, gadgets, status symbols we call them now, don't we? Have you got a television? Have you got a washing machine? Have you got this or that? These are the ways in which life is being estimated. And this is the bigness. This is the thing into which people have entered as emancipation from the cramping, confined gospel which is taught in the Bible. This is real bigness to have a house full of gadgets. That's greatness, that's bigness. But now lest anybody may think that I'm being unfair or that I'm caricaturing the position, I'm dealing with the majority first. But I could demonstrate to you very simply that precisely the same thing is true of your most sophisticated intellectual. how they spend their day today, what have they been reading, what do they do? What is there really to the kind of life which they think is so wonderful, this life of the intellect, what does it add up to, what does it really lead to? You know, the mere fact that you read a large number of books doesn't really imply anything of necessity. People can read books as others drink whiskey. It can be as much a habit as just that. You just read book after book after book and you end exactly where you began. What do they really know about life? What do they really know about men? And the brilliant, clever, startling, thrilling articles and all the excitement of the gossip of the clubs and so on and these reporters who've got an inkling of something that's happening. What is there to it? What is there in it? When you really analyze it, is that bigness? Well, now, my friends, here you are, but let's look at it in terms of achievement. What have such people to show at the end of their lives? Let me ask the question as the Apostle Paul puts it in writing to the Romans in chapter 6. What profit have we then in those things uh, whereof we are now ashamed? Have you tried that life? Well, if you have, let me ask you to draw up a balance sheet at this moment. What's it given me? What have you got? What have you achieved? What have you succeeded in? What have you really possessed? Let me take you further. What of the outlook? This great, big, broad life which we are supposed to believe in, what what kind of outlook does it give you? And you know the truth about it? It is a life which gets smaller as you go on. I'm old enough now to say a thing like that. I know many men who, about the same age as myself, I can look back when we used to have our discussions and arguments in our teens and our twenties and even in our thirties and they would call me a fool that I'd sparked my life by going in for this preaching and this gospel, this big, great life that I'd forsaken and that they were still going on with. I still know them. And what a change I've seen in them. That life which seems to be so wonderful when you're young as you go on, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And they increasingly look back and look back with longing, wish they could have it all over again. Why? Well, because they've got nothing in the present. Oh, how they wish they could go back to school. Oh, how they'd like to be children again. How they'd like to go through it. They're always looking back. And they hate old age. Old age is to them a curse. It's a terrible thing. It's an abomination. They'll go, why? Well, because, you see, this life without God is a life which depends entirely upon me, myself. And as I get older, I find my faculties failing, my health may be failing. And as I fail, well, I've got nothing. I've produced all I've had. I myself, there is no God, there's no other influence. It's all in me and in other people. And we're all failing together. So what can we do? Well, we've become back numbers and others have come in and others are going on. We've reached the retiring age and there we are. Nobody remembers anything about us. Nobody ever sends me a patient now. It's as if I'd never lived at all. That's what they say. And there they are shunted onto a siding and the other expresses are on the main lines. It's a life that gets smaller and smaller the further you go on in it. But let me come to the end. Has it got any hope in it? You see, this is a life which gets so small that eventually it becomes, as this man says, distress. All nations compassed me about. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about. They compassed me about like bees. What are they? Well, I've mentioned some of them already. Old age, accident, illness, loss of loved ones, loss of position, retirement, decrepitude coming on, decay in my faculties. And there, behind them all, pressing in on all directions upon me, the ultimate specter of death itself. And here I am, hemming in upon me like bees, and I feel the pressure upon me, and I can't expend, I can't get out. It's shutting down to what? To nothing. I have no comfort. There's no life beyond this. There's no spiritual realm. There's no God I have no comfort. Nothing can stop or arrest this process. I have no help at all. Nobody can help me. You can't undo the processes of nature. And after all, I'm nothing but a creature of nature. I'm only a body and it is inevitably decaying. What can I do? I have no comfort. I have no hope. I have no help. I have no hope of deliverance whatsoever. And when I eventually do die, there's nothing. That is what is commended as breadth, as bigness. As largeness. The life a man ought to go in for. Because it's so wonderfully broad. So expensive. With its ever expanding horizon. It's nothing but the lie of the devil. Life without God from beginning to end is a small life. It reduces men to a glorified ape. And it gives him... No comfort, no real help, no value, no meaning, no purpose. And in the end it leaves him alone, without hope, without God in the world, with everything pressing in upon him. And no comfort, no consolation, no hope of release or of escape. Distress. Oh, how glad I am that I can take you to my second point, which is the life to which we are delivered. That's the life from which we are delivered. Look at, for a moment at the life to which we are delivered. I needn't keep you. It's just the exact opposite of all I've been saying. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large, in a wide place. That's your gospel. I am come, said our blessed Lord, that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. Life, which is life indeed. Can I demonstrate this? I can. Let's take the very self same points which we have taken on the other side. What about this life from the standpoint of outlook? Well, you see, at the very beginning, it takes us into infinity. The other life starts with men, it ends with men. Where does this start? God! In the beginning, God! You don't start with men, you lift up your eyes. Another realm, a spiritual realm, an unseen realm. This is the realm of the visible only. Now, let me be quite fair. You know, some of those old Greek philosophers, they they discovered this much. They knew that life couldn't be explained in terms of man. They believed it was their groping after the real truth which is found in the Bible that there are certain absolutes above, beyond, somewhere, and that all that we see are but expressions of that. And to that extent, they were so superior to the modern men. But the gospel takes us infinitely higher and beyond it all and says that God is over all. The absolute, eternal, almighty, omnipresent, omniscient God. So that at once, you see, you are face to face with infinity with absolute qualities and characters without any limitation whatsoever. And everything about men is to be seen under God so that you get your psalmist in the eighth psalm. You see, he, like the modern man, looked up at the sun and the moon and the stars which God had made, and then he asks his famous question, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of men uh, that thou visitest him? Everything is seen in the context of this great God who's made us, and not we ourselves, that uh, life isn't an accident, and that man is not merely some evolutionary product. Well, what is he? Well, you see, according to this view, man is made in the image of God. He's big. Bigger than he can ever know or ever realize or understand. Made body, soul, and spirit. And man knows that when he's honest, every man has a sense of God within him. Every man has a sense of an ultimate supreme being. Man has got a feeling within him in the words of Longfellow. Dust of water, dust, returnest, was not spoken of the soul. You can't conceive of yourself as Ending to exist. You can't. It's impossible. There is within man a sense of eternity. A sense of something bigger, vaster, greater than all he sees. He's in the world, but he feels he's bigger than it. There is eternity in his heart. It's there. And that is because man has been created in the image of God. And what of you of men? I'm not in this world just to eat and to drink. And I have my fill of pleasure and then go out as an extinct volcano, a mere crater with nothing in it. No, no, I'm made in the image and likeness of God and I have propensities within me that I feel surging within me and that are meant for this ampler ether, this diviner air. And what about life? Well, it's a big thing, it's a great thing. We are pilgrims on the road to eternity. This isn't the only life nor the only world. And there's an object and a purpose in life. It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And man is here to develop, to develop his mind, to develop his spirit, to develop his every power and faculty. He's meant to be drawn out and to be expanding ever always as he communes with this God. And so, you see, his life becomes a life full of interest. If I could give you some little impression tonight, my dear friend who is not a Christian in this gathering, of the bigness and the greatness and the thrill and the excitement of this Christian life and living, I should go home tonight a very happy man. Do you know what a big life it is? Have you ever studied the Bible? Have you ever pitted your mind against it? Have you ever got yourself immersed in the mighty argumentation of the Apostle Paul in epistles like that to the Romans and to the Ephesians? And you'll feel your little mind being drawn out. You'll be dealing with what Thomas Carlyle called infinities and immensities. You'll feel you're grappling with big things. You won't be shouting hysterically, but you'll be grappling with thoughts and ideas and visions which go on expanding forever and forever. Haven't you noticed this modern world, this modern life, which is lauded so much? Look at its poetry. What's the hallmark of poetry today? It's this, isn't it? I'm not saying this. The critics are saying it. The real hallmark of poetry today is meaninglessness. That's your great modern poetry. Don't look for meaning. Look for sensation. Look for sound. The great poetry of today is the poetry... You mustn't ask what it's saying. But, you know, as you get perhaps the poet himself reading it, if he's got a good voice... It does something to you. You get a sensation. It seems a mess, a jumble of words, but it doesn't matter. He's brilliant at putting them together and it does something to you. You don't know what it does, but it makes you feel happier and it gives you this sensation. But the thing itself is meaningless. Am I not describing accurately the poetry of Dylan Thomas? Am I not describing accurately the prose of James Joyce? Sensation. Sensation's glorified. They don't even any longer believe in the mind when they're quite honest. They've got beyond it, like your D.H. Lawrence is, who says we must go back to nature. The trouble is we've lived too much in the realm of the cerebrum. We must go back to nature. Sex, be free with it. Then you'll really begin to live. When you're living as an animal, back to the farmyard. Not intelligence? They really don't believe in that any longer. Why? Oh, because, you see, the previous generation are trusted to intelligence only. And that inevitably arrives at a blank. And then you must have something. So you say, oh, we don't want intelligence. We want sensation. We want experience. So you will find quite a popular movement in the States today, United States of America, where they deliberately are taking drugs in order to get the sensations. And it's led, may I say, by graduates of Harvard University. That's where your belief in intellect alone gets you in the end. It becomes a blank wall. Then you say, sensation, anything to make me feel. And so, you see, you're going back to the jungle in your poetry, in your music, in every other respect. Meaninglessness. Well, oh, I'm contrasting all this. With what begins to happen to you the moment you become a Christian, you find, you see, that you enter into a realm now of great and profound ideas, where your mind is expanded and where you begin to see everything in a new way. Let me put it to you to save time by quoting to you some verses from a hymn. This is the experience of the man who becomes a Christian, who cries unto the Lord in his distress, and he's brought out into a large place. He says, everything's different, loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, spirit breathing from above. Thou hast taught taught me it is so. Oh, this full, this perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. But listen to this. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. Now that's literally true. When a man becomes a Christian, he even sees nature in a way that he's never seen it before. He's looked up at the skies, he's looked at the flowers, he's looked at the grass, he's looked at the mountains and the rivers. But you know, he hasn't really seen them. Now he sees everything in a different way. Heaven above is softer blue. He hadn't realized that amazing tint, that color, that beauty. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around, is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen birds with gladder songs or flow. Flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since. I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. The moment you become a Christian, your mind really begins to work. And you see everything in a new way. You see deeper beauty, greater thought, greater possibility. Everything expands. And of course, judged from the standpoint of achievement, it's exactly the same thing. You find you're growing from day to day, growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. You're given a new power. You're able to overcome things that used to get you down. You've got a new peace. You've got a new joy. You've been you're made a master of your life. You see, the other life makes you a victim of life. As I say, they all come crowding in. But not here. You stand in the middle of it all and you're more than conqueror. You're master of your life. You're in control. And there's nothing about it, I say, to the glory of God that gives me greater thrill or joy. Than to announce that it's a life that gets bigger the more you go on in it. I wouldn't go back a single day. I wouldn't go back to infancy. I wouldn't go back to my life in school. I wouldn't go back to my unregenerate days. Thank God they're finished. I don't want to go back a day. I want to go forward. I want to know more of God. I want to know more of Christ. I want to know more of the power of the Spirit and the love of the Spirit. I want to know more of his companionship. It's a life that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes, though things go against me, I'm not living a charmed life. We're all subject to the same vicissitudes as everybody else. But you see, as a Christian, you see them in a different way. And you face them in a different way. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Surrounded by trials and problems and difficulties and tribulations. This is what he says. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Therefore, the blacker life gets and the older one gets, it makes these other things shine more with a corresponding exceeding glory, Get bigger and bigger and bigger, expanding and expanding until they will reach the light of a perfect day. And so finally, my dear friends, once you enter into this life, you've got an everlasting hope. An everlasting hope. That's what this man keeps on saying. He says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. It doesn't last only as long as you are young and healthy and as long as your circumstances are favorable. His mercy endureth forever. It will never cease. Indeed, it will become greater and greater to you. And though death itself come as it must come, you are all right. If our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, We have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That is the position of the Christian. You heard me praying just now for those who are bereaved and sorrowing. There was a friend worshipping with us here last Sunday who is now in the glory. He was only 49. Young men, strong men, But he's gone from time to eternity and we'll all have to go. Here's the test of the bigness of your life and your view of life and your philosophy. How does it stand up to that? How does it face that? If it can't face that, it's no good. If, at the end, the biggest thing of all, you're pressed into the corner, into utter distress, and have no hope, no light, you're a failure. But this life is a life that puts you into a wide and a large and a broad place. Let me complete the hymn I've been quoting His forever only his who my lord and me shall part. Ah with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. First born light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. The apostle Paul is an old man. He writes his very last letter, which is his second epistle to Timothy. Here he is at the very end of his life. Do you remember how he puts it? Listen to this. This is the way to end. Oh, how it expands gloriously at the end. He says, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearance. What a way to end. Instead of narrowing down into final hopelessness and despair, it opens out into the light of a perfect day. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be with Christ, which is far better. Oh, what a wonderful life. The life that the world dismisses and derides as being so narrow and cramping and confined. It opens out and expands until your life is lost in god in the glory of eternity i must not keep you we have considered together the life out of which we are delivered we have considered the life into which we have we are delivered But you know the greatest thing of all is the way in which we are delivered. The breadth and the greatness of the way in which we are delivered. Did you notice it? It's just this. I cried unto the Lord in my distress. The Lord heard me and set me in this large place. Everything about this is big. A man doesn't save himself, it's God who saves him. The Almighty God. That's what I mean when I say that I'm sorry for a man who isn't a Christian. A man who doesn't know that God is interested in him. Oh, what he misses. How small his life is. But here, you see, it is the Lord. It is all in him. Bigness. All right, look at it. We are going to remember it, some of us, as we eat of the bread and of the wine. What are we going to remember? Well, what we are going to remember is this that the very Son of God came out of the eternal glory into this world of time. Now, are you interested in big ideas? Do you want to have your mind expanded? Here it is. Listen to this. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The little baby in the manger in Bethlehem is the one who's made the whole cosmos. Now, where's your mind? Is it big enough to get there? You who want bigness and breadth and greatness... Try to measure and to span the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, says the Apostle Paul, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's bigness. According to the Apostle Paul, the princes of this world didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into this world. They thought they were big men. And they could judge another prince or another king or another philosopher. They'd got the tape measures that were adequate. But here is Godhead, divinity, incarnate deity standing before them. And they say, away with this fellow. Who is he, this carpenter? Their little measures were so small, they couldn't measure him. But God says the apostle hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. God in the flesh, incarnate deity. Here are your paradoxes that are so big that if you live as you will if you're a Christian to all eternity, you'll never fathom it, you'll never understand it. The glory and the bigness of it all. And that he saves us. How? By dying in utter helplessness upon a tree. Do you want intellect? Do you want sensation? Do you want love? What is it you want? Well, you'll get it all there. It's all there in this one blessed, glorious person who came from heaven and lived as a man and died as a felon in order that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and that we might become the children of God. But the most astounding thing of all is this. What have I got to do about it all? Well, you see, all I have to do is to cry out cry out. I'm not invited to set out upon some great expedition of research. I don't have to pass through endless universities and study endless textbooks which I can't understand to get hold of an idea. No, no. Here you see the essential bigness and greatness and depth of it all. All you do is, when you're absolutely hemmed in and you don't know what to do nor where to turn, cry out. I cried unto the Lord in my distress. The Lord heard me and set me in a large place. Here's a way of salvation that'll baffle you, I say, to all eternity, that you do nothing but simply cry out. But because it is this, there's hope for everybody. Hope for the most unsophisticated. Hope for the biggest fool. Hope for the vilest, blackest sinner. Hope for all. And if you feel this distress tonight of failure, of shame, of sin, of pollution, if you feel you've lost everything and that you're nothing, cry out unto him. And he'll hear you and he'll deliver you. He'll forgive you. He'll give you new life. He'll give you a new nature. He'll give you a new start. He'll put his spirit into you, and he'll lead you on. And at the end, he'll lead you through the river of death and you'll be with him in the glory of the losty Listen to our Lord saying it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. My dear friend. See the smallness of this godless life. Cry out unto him, turn to him and say this: just as I am of that free love, the breadth, length, depth and height to prune. Here for a season, then, above. O oh, Lamb. I can say that. And you'll begin to prove it. The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of the love of God, which passeth knowledge, you'll begin to prove it here in this world for a season. Then, beyond this world, above, forever and forever, O Lamb of God,